Father God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have to meet together in relative comfort and safety. Lord, we thank you for this privilege. And Father, we don't want to waste this morning what so many of our brothers and sisters around the world would long for, the opportunity to publicly praise you and glorify you and declare that Jesus alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Lord, would you help us to take on board what you want us to take on board this morning? Would you help our hearts to be transformed as you desire them to be transformed? Lord Jesus, would you have your way this morning? Would these words that we share this morning be more yours than they are mine or or anyone else's? Lord Jesus, have your way. Not for our glory we pray, but for yours. Amen. All right. We are starting another series on a book of the Bible. Some of you guys have gone through a book of the Bible with us. Some of you guys have turned up a bit more recently. Um, And we're doing the book of Joshua for several reasons. First of all, because even though we would love to start at Genesis, if we start in Genesis, then we're going to be in Genesis for the next six years because there's too much great content to cover, um, half an hour, 40 minutes at a time on a Sunday morning. So we're going to do Joshua, which gives us a chance to jump back into some of the first five books of the Bible, but also sets up a bunch of stuff for the rest of the Old Testament. Now, if I squint at you this morning, it's because I have a new prescription and it's a bit awkward. And for that same reason, I've had a bunch of conversations over the last two years of different people talking to me saying, Bob, the print that you use on the screen is too small. And it seems no matter how big I make it, it's always too small. So I encourage you to all move down and fill these vacant seats at the front. Um, but I want you to have a Bible in front of you. If, if you need a large print Bible and you don't own one, chat to me during the week and we will sort something out, Okay. And I've chatted with one other person this morning who's already been into the book of Joshua because they knew this was coming, who's been highlighting and, and scribbling and drawing and coloring in. And it's Dick Hawthorne, wherever you are, Dick. Fantastic. If you want a really good study Bible, have a chat with Dick because he's, he's got a man on the inside who knows some awesome study Bibles. Now, the book of Joshua, before we get stuck into it, where actually is it? For those of you who may not know, it's right near the start of the Bible. You've got Genesis, Exodus. What comes after Exodus? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Fantastic. And we understand that the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses, which gets, which gets really awkward because he actually records his own death at the end of Deuteronomy. So we know that not all of it, so if you flick over to Deuteronomy chapter 34, the very last page of Deuteronomy, you will see Moses dies, and it would be quite awkward for him to record this on his own. So some of the information which we have and some of the editing that happens in the first five books of the Bible, we actually understand Joshua was involved in that as well. So let's start right at the start of Joshua, and let's see where we end up this morning. Okay, Joshua chapter 1 verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, or you might have servant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Fantastic. Close your Bible on your finger. See, at this speed, we're going to be here for quite some time. This is how the story begins in the book of Joshua. And if all you had was the book of Joshua, to start with, you would have no clue who Joshua even is. You go, wait a sec, who is this person? He's just turned up. Moses has died. We have a fair idea who Moses is. But who is this Joshua bloke? 
Now, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Before you read the theology, read the theologian. Same as we did with James, same as we did with John. Before we are actually going to get stuck into the meat of this, we need to know who Joshua actually is. Otherwise, when he speaks to us, he's going to have zero credibility whatsoever. So flick back with me to Exodus chapter 17. Okay, Exodus chapter 17. And we're going to be reading from verse 8 to 16. So we know the Israelites have now come out of Egypt. This is the point of the story we're at. And the moment they come out of Egypt, the moment that they come out and, and the Lord delivers them from the hand of their enemies and the Lord starts looking after them, they get manna and quail in chapter 16, they get water from a rock in chapter 17, these supernatural, amazing things that God does to provide for his people. We come to this, chapter 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And if you remember, Moses' staff is a pretty funky staff. That's the staff that God said to him, lay the thing down and it turns into a snake and it swallows the snakes that the staffs of the Egyptian magicians turned into. It's, it's an interesting staff. Verse 10, so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. How frustrating would that be if you were Joshua? In the middle of a battle and you see Moses drop his arms and all of a sudden, you're not winning anymore. That would be a bit peculiar, if nothing else. Verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up on one side, one on the other. One on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till... Sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. It was a bit of a long day. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Interesting. Because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Okay, that's an interesting story. Exodus chapter 32. Now, Exodus chapter 32 is where Moses goes up the mountain to talk with God. And we know that when God's presence comes in a physical, tangible way in this story, that God comes as this, as this cloud of lightning and thunder and blackness and settles down on the top of the mountain. And the Israelites are told, don't go near the mountain. It's God's sacred mountain. It's God's holy mountain. Any animal that wanders onto it, you've got to kill the animal. So let's start reading from verse 11, Exodus 32, verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. I don't know if you've ever argued with God like this, trying to change his mind, but Moses has a fair crack at it often. Verse 13, remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as, new, your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented. And did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. 
They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. What? What's Joshua doing there? This is God's holy mountain. No one else is allowed up. We know that Moses hasn't gotten right down to the Israelite camp yet. Otherwise, Joshua would have been able to hear what was going on. Have a look at verse 18. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. Now, Moses is a fair bit older than Joshua. That's interesting. Joshua is in a very peculiar place that no one else is. None of the other elders of Israel are here. None of the other priests are here. Aaron, Moses' brother, is not here. Interesting. Let's have a look at another one. Numbers, chapter 13. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Chapter 13, and we'll read from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. Verse 9. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph, Gadi, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, son of Vophsi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, son of Maki. Verse 16, these are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. So back down there in verse number 8, we have from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. That's Joshua. But Moses changes his name. Now that's interesting because he was already being called Joshua back here in Exodus, what we just looked at. But here in Numbers, he's referred to by his original name and then the explanation is given that Moses changed his name. We've talked about this before, but when in Scripture, when God changes someone's name, when God talks to Abraham and changes his name or Sarah and changes his name, when Jesus talks to Simon, who is called Peter, and changes his name, a name change signifies ownership. It's like giving someone a nickname. When you give someone a nickname, there's a sense of ownership in there. And sometimes it's a positive thing, sometimes it's a negative thing. Change in name is a change in ownership. And so we have this peculiar mention here of Joshua. So skip over to Numbers chapter 14, and let's read what happens there, because Joshua is mentioned here as well. So at the end of chapter 13 in Numbers, the spies come back with a report about the promised land. So God brings the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He sovereignly, majestically provides for them in the desert, brings them to his holy mountain, gives them the law, and then he brings them to the promised land and they send spies into the land to have a look what's going on. The spies bring back the report. There are two spies that say, actually, yes, this, this land is full of giants, which we can do a study on one day. That's fascinating. This land is full of incredibly violent people. They're strong. They're militaristic. And two spies say we can take them. And ten spies say, yeah, I'm not so sure about this. 
chapter 14. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, Here's Joshua sharing his heart. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And so we we can see that the position that Joshua is in is, again, this strange privileged position that he has been able to go in with the other spies and to see what's going on. And except for Caleb and except for Moses and Aaron, everyone else disagrees that it's a good idea. Now, the issue is not that everyone else had no clue who God was. The issue is that they had all, as an entire population, come out of Egypt. They had all seen the plagues in Egypt. They had all seen the frogs. They had all seen the lice. They had all seen the water turn to blood. They had seen God strike down Pharaoh's son himself. Everyone had seen that. Everyone had come out of Egypt. Everyone had passed through the sea as God was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Everyone had seen that. Everyone had come into the desert. Everyone had seen manna in the desert and quail in the desert and water coming from a rock in the desert. Everyone had seen the glory of God in the cloud settle down on the mountain. And everyone had seen Moses come down with these tablets that were not written by human hands, but inscribed with the finger of God. Everyone had seen that. But there's a difference here between the trust that Joshua has for God and the trust that the rest of the population have for God. That's what sets Joshua and Caleb apart in this particular narrative. Skip over the page. Sorry, you've got a different Bible than me. You probably don't need to skip over the page. Verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. So God's saying, tell you what, let me wipe them out and you and I will start again. Verse 13, Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them. And again, Moses starts arguing with God. Come down to verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. 
But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for each of the 40 days you explored the land. You will suffer for your sins and know that it is what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken and will surely do these things to the whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. They're about to have a really bad couple of weeks, years, decades. And it's interesting. And so this is why if you have a look at a map, and we'll have one up next week, of where Egypt is when the, Is- when the Israelites leave it and where Israel is that they were trying to get to, it's actually not a huge amount of space to go wandering around in, particularly when you've got this number of people, a ludicrous amount of people. Some people say around about 2 million people. It's not a huge space. They weren't wandering in the desert because they got lost. They were wandering in the desert because God said, I'm going to put you into exile. I'm going to put you into the wilderness because there is something in you I need to kill. And it's not that they didn't know God, it's that they didn't trust God. And that's where with Joshua this thing was different. And it's interesting then at the start of the book of Joshua, what we have proclaimed is Joshua's ascendancy to the reign of of looking after Israel, to to sort of the the general kind of position over everyone, and it's because Moses had died. The last body... As we just read, until the last body falls in the wilderness, the last body to fall in the wilderness was Moses. God left him till last. It's interesting. All of these things tell us about situations that Joshua was in, but we still don't really know much about him himself. So skip back with me to Exodus 33. Exodus 33 verse 7. Now, before this, there's a whole lot of instructions that are given about how God is going to meet with his people. And they talk about this temporary uh, tabernacle or uh, a tent, which is what God uses before the temple gets built. And it's called the tent of meeting or it's called the tabernacle. So chapter 33, verse 7. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young aide, Joshua son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Now, we have a fair idea that Joshua, who is here referred to as a young man, is about 56 years of age. I expect to be young when I'm 56. Very young when I'm 56. And... For everything that we already know about Joshua, for the way that he's gone into battle and won, for him being among the people and having seen everything that they've seen, for him, as we know, is is going to happen, that he has this relationship and this trust in God that the rest of the population doesn't have. And this is a very peculiar mention 
of him in scripture. Why on earth do we have a record of this? Question number one. Why do we have a record of it if it's not important? Okay, so it's important. Why is it important that we know this facet of Joshua? I went digging through some commentaries, and everyone finds this fascinating. They say, look, the tent actually didn't need anyone to guard it, so he's not there to guard the tent. It would not have been subject to vandalism. It would not have been attacked. That's not what he's there for. Moses did not put Joshua there in order to judge the different issues of the people when they came out, because that was one thing that Moses did. People would come out to him if they had an issue that they needed settled. And that's not what this passage of Scripture is about. Also, the language that's here to describe it, verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose. There's this thing of it's not a one-off thing. It's not on one occasion that Moses would leave the tent and Joshua would stay behind. And there's also this thing of going, Moses is not about to nick out from the tent if the manifest glory of God in that, in that pillar of cloud was there at the same time. He would not turn his back and walk out on a conversation with the Almighty. So if the glory of God is finished chatting with Moses and the glory of God moves away from the tent, and if Moses then goes out of the tent and goes back to the camp, what on earth is Joshua doing? What is he waiting for? What is he sitting in the tent waiting for? We know that he has this peculiar position of privilege. We find him on the mountain. We find him being one of the spies. We find that out of all of them, he was the only one that Moses changed the name of. There's this peculiar privilege that he seems to have. So what do you think? Joshua was up to. Let's ask the question in a modern context. Let's imagine that someone came in and said, the glory of God was in a chip shop downtown this morning. A pillar of cloud came down and entered the chip shop. But the pillar of cloud left the chip shop about six minutes ago. Would you be inclined to go to the chip shop? What if you were in the chip shop when it happened? And then the glory of God departs from the chip shop. Would you stay in there? What for? What, what would be going on in your heart that you would want to stay in a room where God had just been? There's an expression that I'm sure you've heard before that sometimes when a young guy is interested in a young girl, and I don't know if it's the same for girls and guys. But there's this expression that he worships the ground she walks on. That he is so besotted with a girl or he's so enamored with a girl that he's just, oh my goodness, she walked into the room. <gasps> well, here we have a very peculiar picture in Scripture of Joshua just wants to sit in the room where God was. And he has Moses' permission to be here. So if Moses thought that this was inappropriate, he probably would have kicked him out. If Moses thought this was weird, we would probably have a different record of this. It's an interesting thought. After everything Joshua had seen, after he'd been through the battles, after he'd seen everything that God had done in the wilderness, after he'd been on the mountain 
when Moses received the Ten Commandments, he had an understanding of what it was like to be around God. When he saw in the battle, when Moses lifted his staff and brought it down, he knew what it was for God's hand to be involved. It's interesting. And what we find at, right at the start of the book of Joshua is that Moses has died and now it's Joshua's time to step up. That as intimate as Joshua was with the Lord, as much as he had this personal hunger or this desire to be near to God, that had to grow legs at some point. That simply being near to God is great for Joshua, but God has something that he needs Joshua to do. God did not free his people from slavery and depression for them to live in the desert permanently. Like we said before, he, he sent them into exile. He sent them into the desert because something needed to die, because he needed to transform them. But they were never supposed to stay in the desert. We know that God brought the plagues of Egypt to debase the false gods of Egypt and to show that he alone is the living God. We know that God struck dead the firstborn sons of Egypt because Pharaoh himself claimed to be a god. We know that God was with the people as a cloud by day and fire by night, that he brought them out through the Red Sea, destroying their pursuers in the process. We know that God brought them to the border of the promised land and that his people didn't trust him. But God still continues to give them manna and quail in the desert. He continues to give them water in the desert. It's interesting. When we have a look at the start of Joshua, when God speaks to Joshua and he says, okay, it's time for you to step up. Think back to a minute, the story that you know. Actually, let's go there and have a look at when God calls Moses. Because I want you to see this. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Then the Lord saw he had gone. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm convinced, concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land, of, a land flowing with milk and honey. No mention of desert here. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, absolutely, I'm your man. What does it say? But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Starts an argument. Verse 12, and God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. 
and they ask me, what is his name? Then what am I going to tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you will say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And he goes on and he goes on from verse 16 the whole way down to the end of that chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, there's this, there's this retort that Moses continually has with the Lord. And we don't find this when God finally tells Joshua to step up. There is a huge difference between the way that God calls Moses and the way that God calls Joshua. Because with Moses, the task comes first. I want you. Here's a burning bush. I need to get your attention. And here's what I need you to do. And it's only after this, it's only a long time after this, that we start hearing about Moses being spoken about as a friend of God, who God would speak with face to face. It's only a long time after this that Moses is actually able to say to God, I, let me see your glory. And God puts him in a cleft in the rock and covers him with his hand and walks past and speaks his name. All of those things come a long time after this. Task first, intimacy with God second. With Joshua, it's the other way around. Before Joshua ever steps up, before God actually says to him, here's, here's the huge big task I want you to do, there's this intimacy, there's this thing of Joshua just wanting to get near to God. Very, very different. We don't get an argument from Joshua. For Joshua, the appointment that God had for him came after his pursuit of intimacy with God. Even his boldness and the rest of his military victories were second to his personal pursuit. So question for this morning. Are you waiting for a burning bush? Are you waiting for God to turn up out of the blue and knock your socks off and to tell you that thing that he wants you to do? Are you waiting for a burning bush experience? The fancy word for this is when someone externalizes their locus of control where you go you know what i'm i can't actually do anything about my relationship with god right now because it's all in the hands of god or maybe it's all in the hands of other people you know what if that if the pastor would just wear a suit my relationship with god would be better <laughs> silly example i know if they would just play more heavy metal music at church, my relationship with God would be better. If they would just, if they, if they, if they, if they. Do we take our walk with God and place it in the hands of someone else? Yes, all the time. Each of us does this. We do this when we get tired. We do this when we get frustrated. We're human beings. Are you waiting for a burning bush? Are you waiting for God to turn up and knock your socks off? Because Moses got that and Paul got that, and in between it's really few and far between. Not many other people have God rock up out of the blue and completely overhaul their life. Moses got sent back to the place that he hated. He never wanted to go back to Egypt. That was his burning bush experience. Paul was blind for three days. And then when he eventually had a change of heart, even the disciples rejected him and kicked him out for a few years. See, there's a huge difference between what God could do through Moses. Moses never got to go into the promised land. 
He was the last person to die before they went in. He never got to go in. There was a limit to what God could do through Moses. Now, Joshua is a completely different story. And every time we find Joshua putting his hand up for something, I'll go and be a spy. I, I am 56 years of age and I'm happy to become the servant of Moses. Can I just go and sit in the tabernacle? Even after the glory of God has departed, I just want to sit there. I just want to be near to whatever it is that God is doing. I'll get involved. I'll plug in. Are you waiting for a burning bush? Because that is placing all of your walk with God external to what you can actually do and elicit and achieve and grow in. Or maybe the Joshua approach. I would, I would commend to you this morning the Joshua approach, if you hadn't picked up on that. There is nothing stopping you from seeking God. Ultimately, there is only one person who can stop you from seeking God, and that's you. Remember what we read when we, when we went through the book of James. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will ignore you completely. Is that what it says? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We find that here with Joshua. We find that here with his call. Joshua doesn't wait for a burning bush. Whatever God is doing, he just wants to be near to God. He is personally, actively seeking God. And when God eventually taps him on the shoulder, he does not argue. Are you waiting for a burning bush? If God gave you a burning bush, would you argue? Turn back with me to Joshua, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to finish here this morning. After the death of Moses, the last body to fall in the desert, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And there is no argument. I'm looking forward to getting stuck into some of the more technical stuff next week, but we needed to start there. Let's pray. Lord, we ask... We ask that you, as you guide us and lead us to read and to, to pick apart and to study this record that you have given to us, 
Lord, we ask that you would speak to us into our own hearts and lives and situations. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us as a church. We ask that you would speak to us as your people in this town and this district and this region. Lord, we ask that we would see more of who you are, that you would reveal your nature and your character and your personality to us through this book. But Lord, we ask that we would be more like Joshua than like Moses. Father, if we have been sitting around in any way waiting for you to do something, and really, Lord, you've been waiting for us, Lord, would you forgive us? Would you give us your grace and your mercy? Would you call us to attention? Lord God, we desire to serve you. We desire to seek after you, to follow you. But Lord God, would you please lead us in that way? Would you please show us how to do that? Lord, we ask not for our kingdom, we ask not for our glory, but for your kingdom and your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.